This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You know, we have rules and there's good reasons why we have rules. We have policies, we have rules, we have things that are put in place to keep society moving in the right direction. We want things to be done properly, right? We, we want things to be handled in a certain way so that people can't just have, so it's not anarchy. So I understand the concept of rules and 99% of the time, I am a big proponent of sticking to the rules. There's a reason why they're there. However, occasionally there seems to be quite clearly a moment when you look at what's going on and you say, you know what? The rule just doesn't apply here. I simply can't really follow the rule here. And you like to believe that in those circumstances where truly a common sense individual would look at the situation and say, you know, I see what that person did. And no, they didn't follow the rule precisely, but I understand why. I can see as a logical human being, I can see why the rule was broken. And you know what? Even though it was a broken rule, even though we are in a law abiding rule following society, there come moments when we can make a decision to say, yeah, that, that falls into the category of it was okay to break the rule that one time. Well, let me tell you a story. You may have heard this today. You may not have heard this today. This is one of those ones that just completely makes me crazy. Police officer in Toronto, Durham region, police officer, Toronto area, responded to a 911 call back in January and ends up at a house where there is a woman who has been on a drug bender for days, taking meth. Now, I don't hang around. You probably don't hang around with a lot of people who take meth, but I watched Breaking Bad. That's my, that, so I get some idea of what meth is all about, and I've read about it, and we have all know a little bit about it. It's one of those drugs that's generally, it's not leaving you particularly lucid when you take it. It's not leaving you with a clear mind. So she goes to this house, responds to this place where there's a 911 call and there's a woman who's been taking drugs for days and days and days. She's on a huge bender. And when the cop gets there and things are sort of looked after, she discovers that there is a tiny kitten, in her words, cowering under a table. It's thin, it's emaciated, doesn't have any food in the house. So the officer, who is, by the way, allergic to cats, thinks the right thing to do is to remove the animal from that situation. She takes the, the kitten, she takes it to a vet to examine the kitten and pays for the visit out of her own pocket. Doesn't even ask, apparently doesn't even get reimbursement for this. She pays for the kitten to be examined by the vet and then arranges for a friend to look after it because she's allergic until the Humane Society office opened the next day when it could be looked after by the Humane Society. But here's the thing, by taking the cat out of the house without getting verbal consent of the stoned out of her brain resident who wouldn't have probably been able to have a conversation anyway, this constable was charged with discreditable conduct because she didn't follow the absolute procedures laid out on how to remove an animal from a home. I guess when the, when the homeowner whose kitten it was came out of her drug induced stupor, she thought the animal had been stolen and got very upset. Now the officer, the other thing was the officer told other officers what was happening. She didn't purloin this kitten out of the home without telling anyone to pretend to steal it. She told everyone there's a kitten there. It's in poor shape. It shouldn't be here. I'm going to take it. So it was, it was not a secret. And everybody apparently who was on the call thought, yeah, you know what? That's the right thing to do. So, so where the reason we bring this up today, she was forced to under, to have a hearing. She had to defend herself at a tribunal hearing. And that was today. But how in the world do we get to the point when you are a police officer who is doing what I would say by, I mean, is there anyone listening who doesn't, when you hear what she did, doesn't think, you know what, that was, that was very kind. That was very compassionate. That, this is a woman who's allergic to kittens and 
sees an animal that's suffering, that's in difficult in a difficult position, and goes out of her way to help, and ends up having to hire a lawyer, or maybe the police association provides the lawyer, I'm not sure, but regardless, has to go and defend herself at a tribunal for breaking the rules. When, when exactly did we become so wedded to the concept of the letter of the law that we are unable to see moments that you simply say, yeah, you know what? Good for you. No, that's not the rule, but nobody was harmed. The woman got her kitten. The drug woman got her kitten back. Everybody left happy. The kitten was fine. Let's just drop this thing. We don't need to pursue this any further. In fact, let's, instead of charging the officer or saying that she was guilty of discreditable conduct, tell you what, let's actually thank the officer. Let's commend her for going above and beyond the call of duty, for taking the animal to get it looked after, to getting it to a friend's house, to getting it to the Humane Society, to getting it examined by the vet, to getting it out of a bad situation. No good deed goes unpunished, right? Isn't that what they always say? So the, the, the prosecution in this case, there's a prosecution. I, I mean, if it sounds over the top, boy, it, it, I agree. But the prosecution in this case alleges that the officer didn't tell the pet owner that she was taking the cat, which is a grave offense. Now, again, you've got a, a homeowner, you've got a resident who apparently, according to the officers on the scene, is strung out on meth. Do you think that even if she'd gone up to her and had a conversation, do you think that in a court of law that a judge would have said, if the woman who was strung out on drugs had signed a document saying, yes, please take my cat, do you think that that would have held up? Do you think that a judge would have said, oh yeah, you were in your right mind to sign a document when you took that cat out of the house? Of course not. She's strung out on meth. I just can't. I can't fathom how we get so hung up on the letter of the law again and again and again. How we get so hung up that we have something that is so obviously a good move, so obviously a wise move. And and here's the other thing, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Reading the story today of the hearing, we're not missing something. There's nothing that we're missing. Okay, just in case you're thinking, oh, well, he's leaving out something where the police officer shot the homeowner to get the cat out of the house. No, 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 no. There's there's nothing, there's no hidden situation here. There's nothing that the officer did that would make you, even though you're probably siding with her, there's nothing that would make you suddenly turn and go, oh, well, okay then. Now I get why they charge her. Nothing that I can find. In fact... The accusation or the prosecution likened this to removing a child from the home. So that's why she's in trouble, because if there had been a child in the home, well, there's all kinds of steps and hoops you have to jump through. And I think there is under most, in most people's eyes, most right-minded human beings' eyes, you can distinguish a difference between removing a kitten from a home where there is drug use and the kitten is suffering and removing a child. I think we can all understand that maybe you would go through different steps if it was a child because the person comes out of their drug haze and now there's complete panic because the kid is missing, even though they shouldn't have been doing the drugs anyway, their choice. We have so many stories, rightly or wrongly. We have so many stories that we read that come up, not so many, we have a number of stories every year that come up of people accusing police officers of doing the wrong thing. Here you've got one of a police officer doing something really nice, I think, really nice, really compassionate, above and beyond the call of duty. Maybe it's a small thing. Removing a cat is not exactly throwing yourself on a, bomb to protect the the resident of a house. But I understand that. But still, a nice thing. And she gets charged. And the hearing isn't over. It's going to continue. It's been put off till February the 7th now. There's got to be, it's going to go on and on. This thing is, it's not, it's, you would also have thought that by the time they get to the hearing and people start talking, that somebody is going to say, you know what? 
we, we've thought about this a little bit and truly the time and the money involved in getting defense lawyers and prosecutors and all these other people, all this, you know what? We're just going to drop this thing. Why waste all the money? Nobody was harmed and the officer did a good thing. But nope, nope, nope. We are pushing through with this thing. We are going to make an example out of this rogue police officer who saved a kitten. We are going to make sure that she pays for her deed. It was good. It was a good deed. It was kind. It was compassionate. But boy, it was wrong because it didn't follow the rule to the letter of the law. We are going to make an example of this cop because if you remove a kitten from a drug home one day, you're going to be mowing people down out on the street with an AK-47 the next. There is no room for any kind of exception within the rules. We have to follow every rule. It makes me crazy. It's, It's coming up to Christmas time. Surely someone could have just said, listen, it's Christmas. We're getting to be Christmas. It's a good deed. The officer was being compassionate. This is the kind of thing. Isn't this exactly the kind of thing that we want our police officers to do? To make choices that are based on compassion and kindness? Isn't this exactly the kind of thing that we would normally say, we commend you for this kind of behavior? Instead, this officer is defending herself, and I don't even know. The stories don't say. I have no idea what the, what the penalty is if this officer ends up being found guilty of the horrible crime of rescuing a kitten from a meth home but not doing it correctly by not getting the approval and the acceptance of the owner of the cat who was in a blur of meth. Because, again, that, that person would have been in fine mental shape to be able to make that kind of distinction. Sorry, makes me a little crazy. Makes me a little crazy because whether you love police or you hate police, we all want our police officers to be good people. We all want them to be good examples. We all want them to be compassionate and do things for the betterment of society. That's why they're there. Again, whether you think they all follow that guideline or whether you don't, that's what we want from our police officers. And here you have someone and they're being punished for it. It makes no sense whatsoever. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that nobody who's overseeing this tribunal is as wedded to the rules as to not be able to see what's going on here. And I am hoping that this police officer does not get found guilty because unless something else comes up, unless there is something else that hasn't come out yet that we don't know about, that this officer is running a kitten mill somewhere and she's stealing kittens from everywhere she can to keep the machinery going, unless there's some other secret thing that we don't know about, come on. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There's a number of sports that this city has done well at over the years, but one of them that's going to be at the top of the list is basketball. This city is a hotbed for especially girls' basketball. Let's be honest. We have put out a lot of very, very good young female basketball players that have gone on to all kinds of success, most notably Today, Kia Nurse, who is actually tonight, interestingly enough, Kia Nurse and her Yukon Huskies are playing against number two Notre Dame in a huge game down in the States, trying to keep their 80, I think it's 81 games now, 81 game winning streak alive. But that is not the only basketball around here because starting Friday, there is a new basketball league that is setting up shop in this city. It's called the Canadian Basketball League and the team that we will be having here in town is called Hamilton United. The gentleman who is behind this league is a familiar name, I think, to most basketball fans and frankly to most people who are just aware of even, just even aware of basketball. That would be Butch Carter, former head coach of the Toronto Raptors, especially you would know him because you were probably becoming a basketball fan back in the days when he was coaching and some guy named Vince Carter was getting going in this area. Uh, Butch joins us now. Butch, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks for having me. You uh, you must have coached a few games with the Raptors here in Hamilton. You must have had a few exhibition games. You guys always came through here. Yeah, we had a couple exhibition games there, and uh, it was a little different. <laughs> <laughs> in what way? Well, 
when you come from the states, I think the first game that I was an assistant coach was an exhibition game in Hamilton, and uh, I never forget there was a big argument after the game because Isaiah wanted uh, the head coach to play Tracy McGrady more, and uh, it was <laughs> tough to play a high school kid, um, you know, when a head coach is trying to win games. So um, that was my first experience there in Hamilton with a basketball game. So, and that was your first game as an assistant coach here with the Raptors was first, in Hamilton. First. First game, and, uh, <laughs> and they're in there uh, disagreeing with with each other uh, strongly, and um, you know, but that was my first game, and because uh, when I came to Toronto on, on from an opposing, when I'd been in Milwaukee, we'd always played uh, in the, you know what was called then the Sky Dome, so right, right, so you know that was my expectation, and all of a sudden, you know, we're in Hamilton, and you, and this was the strange part for me. Our arch rival in high school, I'm from Middletown, Ohio, was Hamilton, Big Blue. So I'm in, <laughs> I'm in Hamilton, Hamilton, Ontario, and uh, so you know those were those were the memories I had about you know, first time coming to Hamilton. So well, and now you're bringing it full circle because your new basketball league, one of the teams, is going to be set up here in Hamilton. As I say, Hamilton United. I- explain if you can. Explain the league to me, and explain the league to the listeners. What what are what would we be expecting from this league? Well, basically, um, there is a gap in per- professional performance for young basketball players. If you are a non-academic basketball player, you don't have a place to go outside of some 5,000-populated community in Kansas or Texas where no one will see you, and the requirements on your grades are actually stronger than they were for your high school qualifications for college so in europe they play you know in the european league we're very familiar because we've drafted marniani valashunas calderon garbajosa so those guys don't go to what we're what we see in north america as a division one college they go play in the club system uh the gasol brothers are two more so all we're doing is trying to set up the highest level of the club system and i believe I strongly believe that with the cooperation of some facility managers, it will be successful. And there is a strong need. Uh, You know, everyone thinks that the kids who want to go play at Kentucky or Duke, you know, or North Carolina, but don't have the grades, they basically have nowhere to go where they can not just play, but be developed. And so you need to set up a scenario where the games aren't too close to each other. You have to, pick coaches that are used to probably training high school or college players uh, at a very high level and you have to put them in an environment facility wise and you know you would under in the last 10 years the university and college facilities uh, growth has been phenomenal and this is a way of playing international rules FIBA basketball 10 minute quarters and allowing the, uh, the young people who cannot play professionally you know that aren't the first pick in the NBA draft, and the NBA, I believe, validated what my thought process was because there were 22 FIBA players drafted in the 2016 draft, nine in the first round and 13 in the second. So, Butch, would this ultimately then be, and I mean, I know you're just getting started now, but ultimately is this just for guys who don't go to university, or is this for them but also for guys who finish university may not have been drafted but still want to play somewhere and maybe keep going and maybe pursue that dream still. Well, I think you have to look at it like the Canadian Football League, but we're just going to go younger. I think the league should be that Canadians have a strong voice in it, um, native Canadians, and then there's certain room for a certain amount of imports. Uh, one thing I learned in as a high school coach at my old high school is you can't save them all. You just have to put a structure together that, where the ones who want to be professional and want to change their life, uh, you're more than happy to allow them to come here to Canada and play. So it's not going to be for a ton of imports. Uh, eventually, as I believe the league gets older, we, we want to do four Canadians this year, and then hopefully in the future the Canadians will unionize and have a stronger voice on protecting their positions, and that's what you're hoping to accomplish on you know, I think it's really simple. There is an abundance, an overabundance, of young men who, for whatever reason, don't love school. 
But we see very successful Major League Baseball. You see hockey where guys don't go to college or university, and they become professional and they play a long time. So I don't think I'm doing anything outside of what we see in sports. Uh, it's just that in basketball, the uh, young men have fed the financial balance sheets of uh, American universities. And Europe doesn't do it. China doesn't do it. South America doesn't do it. So, you know, I think I think it's something that we can do. And as long as uh, I can get more cooperation from facility managers who have these great facilities, and I can build some trust this year with how we operate um, and how we act, and which on anything I've been associated with with basketball, that's never been a problem. I think we'll be quite successful for these young Canadian men who, who aren't top-flight NBA players. Outside of North America, you, I mean, you're talking about the club teams. Out, who was the last guy? Because now the NBA, you have to go to college for at least a year. You can't get drafted out of high school anymore. So is there anybody anymore coming along who, other than playing in Europe or China or somewhere, I mean, depending on where you want to go, there's really no other path in then if you're, as you described them, a player who isn't necessarily great at school but might be good at basketball. Right, but the path is always determined by the number of jobs available. So stay with me. So the NBA, when they needed talent, they allowed high school players in. Sure. Right? And the last great class would have been Kobe, Garnett, McGrady. You know, those guys came straight from high school to the pros. Now the NBA has a problem because they've got 15 up to, could have up to 15 guaranteed contracts. So actually there's no jobs. So every year, there's 351 or 52 United States colleges or universities that produce 100 draft hopeful players every year. So unfortunately, when you run into a draft that only has 60 slots, and now 22 of them are going to European club players, these kids are stacking on top of each other. And so living here in Canada the last 17 years, I love what the OHL does. So I say, don't go older with your basketball, go younger, because those kids are being farmed off somewhere. If they want to be a professional, they don't like school, or don't do well in school, then there's another way to teach them to be a professional. And we we see it every day with our Blue Jays. Most of those guys did not go anywhere near a college or university. Um, and we see it, you know, with what's going on in the Canadian Hockey League. So... You know, it's it's not something that's abstract. It's actually what is going on in sports. And I think that it's in the best interest of all these young guys to have another avenue. I think it might surprise people, though, to hear you talking in the way that this is going to be somewhere where people who have NBA or professional aspirations might come. Because I think most people, when they would have heard about something like this, would have not expected that. It sounds like you're positioning this, that this is still a stepping stone towards something bigger. Well, I signed one high school player today from North Carolina. I probably will sign four more before the new year. So there are high school players who understand that they don't have an option. They don't want to go to an isolated junior college, you know, somewhere that they've never been and not get good coaching. And I think facility-wise, once they've seen our facilities, um, and also, you know, what's attracting them is them and their families is that, you know, they have to they have to pass the drug test. So, you know, if you're not going to come up here and be a good citizen, this is not the place for you to be. So, we're fully going to be fully water compliant. We're, we've been working with uh, the organization in Ottawa who is over that, and we've got a educational portion that goes in December, and then the first of the year we start uh, all the doping process for testing. And we've tested all of them before they even came into the country. So, you know, the issue at the end of the day is you want to play basketball and be a good citizen. That's what we're trying to do and provide uh, another avenue, an exciting avenue. But I believe that I will be successful in recruiting very good high school players because what Canadians understand is that the the Carter name, Butch Carter, Chris Carter, does me very well when I walk in. I have my business degree from any university. So if they want to go to school, I don't have a problem with that. Actually, the way we set it up is that for Canadian kids who play three or more years, uh, we put aside $6,000 a year for their uh, college or university education. 
so, you know, the issue at the end of the day is that I'm not saying that education isn't important, but I'm saying for those who have failed uh, in their 15, 16, 17 years, and they want to pursue being a professional basketball player, I mean, that would be the goal. And clearly the NBA doesn't have a problem with it with the, all the guys they're drafting out of Europe. Has Basketball Canada been supportive of this? Are they on board with the idea? Basketball Canada has to sit and let me do my thing because the issue at the end of the day is, is all of them are afraid, you know, exactly what I'm doing. This is no different than when I became went from interim coach to head coach in Toronto. No one knew who Butch Carter was in Canada. They didn't understand my concepts. And we had to get out there and perform. And actually, them not helping actually helps me because it lets me go do what I want to do. I don't have to sit in a boardroom and get 20 hands of approval. I basically have a very good friend, Bruce Helsel. Uh, we played high school basketball together. He's, he just retired from Wells Fargo. Uh, him and I and two other gentlemen here in Canada, uh, we, we talk on the phone and say, hey, coach, this is what you want to do. Let's go do it. So I've been building programs from my first uh, high school job. And in my mind, it's real simple. You go in and you overperform on what the expectations are. And it starts with just how you manage your building. You go in the building. You find out what their rules are. We copy their codes of conduct. So we're not going in and asking for a separate set of rules for the players. We're going in and saying, whatever your rules are for your building, we will, we will overperform to that. And if the guys don't do it, they leave. It's real simple. They leave. So I think you have to operate uh, with a strong structure. Uh, and I believe that all the young men that I've coached, they actually thrive in that strong structure because they don't have to deal with all the small minutiae stuff hmm. that other people allow. And, you know, it's we see it every day in the OHL. Guys come off the bus, shirt and tie. Um, but we're going to have the strongest uh, doping policy of any sports team in North America. That sets the bar there. So, you know, the goal is to give the young people of Canada that are playing basketball and enjoy basketball a clean product to look up to. Uh, and everyone, you know, doesn't have time to go to a Raptors game or can afford a Raptors game. And the Raptors are the ultimate in the club system. Um, and that's the way it should be. But we have these communities that have three, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand people that you have thousands of kids every year that have never been to a live sporting event with basketball. And I was going to ask you that next because this, this is, and what I'm saying, I'm sure, is not a surprise to you. I'm sure you've heard it a hundred times already, but. Right now, the Raptors are probably playing as well as they ever have in their franchise's history. You've got a million college and NBA games you can watch on TV day and night. I mean, you could turn on your TV almost any time, including with NBA TV and see basketball. So how do you compete with that? How do you carve out that spot in the market to be relevant enough to stay financially healthy? There's 700,000 people in Hamilton, and most of them have never been to a Raptors game because they can't afford it. So the issue is, can we put an exciting enough product on the floor and the game experience? So it's ideal that you, fortunately, Mohawk built a gorgeous facility. Uh, I wish there was more than 750 seats, but it is what it is. And so we just have to start there. So you have the Pan Am Center. You've got 2,000 seats, brand new facility. You've got Durham College. You've got 2,400 seats that uh, we just went in and did our 3D shooting of the of for our um, our seat uh, cbltickets.com. So you know what you have to do is like I tell the guys the, the orientation meeting. You're in a foreign country, and the foreign country requires you to go in and rebuild your name. That's what the chance that I got as head coach of the Raptors. That's the message I was able to con- convince and convey to the players that I coach. So we have to go in that facility. We have to rebuild our name, Hamilton United specifically. And I think you have the right coach. Uh, I think Rob Bodden's involvement um, with Ancaster basketball, right? I just think I think you have to go in and win. It's, yes, it's competitive. But in reality, I don't believe we ever compete with the Raptors. The CFL season is over. The Blue Jays are gone. We won't see them until, train, until spring training. 
so we I believe we have a unique opportunity and um, I think when you look at what we did from the financial side we stayed away from the ice arenas because of the extreme cost of the ice arenas and the lack of intimacy that it provides for basketball so you know I know that well coaching in Maple Leaf Garden coaching in you know, in uh, the Rogers Center so you have to have that intimacy and the gym gives you that it gives you the best chance to be successful so but the most important thing in the mind of the players, nothing is given. When you come to Canada, you got to earn it like everyone else. And I think if we maintain that attitude, I think we'll have a great chance. I look forward to seeing it. I look forward to seeing a few games and seeing uh, what the level is going to be and uh, and whether this can whether this can do well with the people. I mean, this is certainly a city that knows basketball and likes basketball, and if something's going to work, then um, you know this is a town where you would think it might have a chance. So, Butch Carter, appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this, and good luck Thank with this venture. Thank you for having me. Take care. That is uh, Butch Carter, former head coach of the Toronto Raptors, now the guy behind the Canadian Basketball League. And I'll tell you, I, I do think that this city, with its basketball background, is somewhere that something like this might work. However, there is certainly history that says it will be a tough go because you may remember years ago, I don't remember how many years ago, we had the Hamilton Skyhawks. Ron Foxcroft was behind this team. Now, there were other issues, but it was it was tough. They had, they had okay crowds, but they were playing at Cops Coliseum back then, and it was difficult. Didn't survive. And then if you recall, you probably don't recall. Almost nobody recalls. We had an ABA team that was supposed to be moving here. In fact, they were going to play also at Cops. They had the Bulldogs move out of part of their offices to make room for the ABA team, which then never showed up. It just sort of vanished into the ether. And here's the biggest challenge I think that this league is going to face. Not writing it off, but a challenge it's going to face. Right now, McMaster's women's basketball team is great. They're, I don't know what number, they're one or two or three in the country. The McMaster men's team is a top 10 team in the country. Mohawk has a very good team. If people are going to go out and see, there's lots of basketball to go and see. So it's going to be, it is, it's going to be a challenge to get people to come out and watch this. It's not that there aren't basketball fans here, but you're going to have to be really good. You're going to have to play at a really high level and do something beyond what you would see at Mac or beyond what you would see somewhere else. That's going to be the trick. That's going to be the challenge. Butch was just talking about the fact that most people can never go to a Raptors game. I agree with him. Most people will never go to a Raptors game, either because they can't get tickets or because it costs too much. Absolutely agree. So how do you get those people, and here's the the challenge for him and for the league, how do you get those people who say, I can't go to a Raptors game, but that's the kind of basketball I like, to get off their couch and not just watch the basketball game, not just watch the Raptors game on TV now, and get off the couch and watch this and not jump from saying, okay, I can't get to a Raptors game, so I'm going to go to a McMaster game. And you got to know that McMaster, by the way, is also going to want to be having its voice heard in this. McMaster is not going to want to have all of its fans suddenly say, oh, I'm not going to go to a Mac anymore. I want to go to Hamilton United game. So the competition, the level of competition for the basketball dollar in this town all of a sudden is pretty, pretty high. And so in order to be a startup that is going to make it here, you're going to have to do something special. And I'm not sure what that is. I mean, great basketball. Okay. A winning team, to a degree, for sure. But I don't know. I, it's it's going. It's it's an interesting idea. I just think it's going to be a challenge for sure. Butch Carter certainly has the name. He certainly has the pedigree. He certainly has coached at the highest levels. He's got a lot of things going for him with this league. Certainly, other leagues have had sometimes people behind them with pedigree. Again, Ron Foxcroft with the Skyhawks, absolutely. But it is going to be a challenge. There's no doubt about that. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. City Council today, long meeting today, long general issues meeting. But one of the items on the agenda, amazingly enough, was the Grey Cup. 
not the game itself. They were not commenting on how much they enjoyed last weekend's CFL championship, although I'm sure they did. But they were talking about the idea of when is Hamilton going to actually host one of these ourselves? When is the game going to land here? Well, joining me to talk about it, a man who knows everything about the CFL, even stuff the CFL doesn't know about the CFL, he knows. He is Rick Zamperin, host of the fifth quarter here on 900 CHML. He joins me now. Rick, how are you this evening? Scott, I'm good. How are you? I'm great. But just, I want to ask you something before we get to the Grey Cup, though, because this story has just come across. Uh, it's from Arash Madani at Sportsnet. Uh, the Grey Cup game, by most accounts, will be, I think, you may probably will agree, will be remembered as one of the better Grey, one of the more exciting Grey Cup games. Lots of people loving it. People who aren't even necessarily diehard, diehard CFL fans raving about the Grey Cup game and how exciting it was. The CFL apparently, according to this report, after that game decided that it had to fine over 20 of its players for sock infractions, for clothing <laughs> infractions, which has now come out. This league, Rick, does sometimes shoot itself, pardon the pun, but shoot itself in the foot, does it not? I mean, this seems like the last thing you need to actually have possibly get out publicly. This is, you know, the timing of it is horrible. Um, I think whenever uh, a league takes a stance against a certain issue uh, against its players, uh, you know, those issues are usually, you know, salary-based, you know, something that is uh, unbelievably serious or has, uh, you know, some far-reaching uh, aspects to it that, that could change the game. Finding 20 or 22 players for sock violations, too high, too low, not the right color, whatever the case was, is absolutely asinine. I, I could not think of a stupider thing for the Canadian Football League to do. And it's funny because I started the show tonight talking about a situation with a police officer and a dog in a meth house, or a cat in a meth house. And, you know, once in a while... You have rules, but once in a while, I think you have to use common sense and just say, in this case, we're going to overlook the rule. We're going to remind you that the rule existed, but we're going to cut you a little slack. This was a great game. Please, in future, I'm going to send you a note. Jeffrey Orge is, I'm I'm Jeffrey Orge. I'm going to send you a letter and say, listen, you wore the wrong socks. Please, in future, don't do that, but thanks for the great game. And then everyone's fine with it and they go, okay, message received. Exactly. Brian Ramsey, one of the CFLPA executives in the article that Arash wrote, basically said that, you know what, we're, we're trying to keep the lines of communication open with the CFL. Uh, this could have easily been a phone call that Commissioner Orridge made to the PA and said, hey, you know what, you know, 20 or 22 of your guys uh, were violating the, the CFL's dress code policy. Uh, you know, can you talk to these individuals and say, hey, here's the mistake that they made? Now, it's really no different than the NFL, who, who has kind of you know, relaxed its its outfit rules over the last number of years. You're seeing a lot of personable, uh, you know, reflections on players' cleats nowadays. Way back when, I mean, it was the letter of the law that you had to wear your socks so high and your towel could only be so long and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Remember Jim McMahon with the Roselle headband? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, for, for Commissioner Orange to, to look at this issue and make an example, really, and at the end of the day, that's what he's doing, of these 22 players, at this time of the year, and, you know, weeks after saying that, you know, there was no link between football and CTE, the degenerative brain disease, uh, is just befuddling. Uh, I'm totally perplexed. Yeah, we're not too worried about your head being smushed into applesauce, but don't wear the wrong socks, for heaven's sakes. That that does seem like a bit of a, uh, a contradiction. All right. Uh, speaking of the Grey Cup, though, this um, as I say, city council today was meeting, and on the agenda was a discussion about Hamilton and a Grey Cup. And apparently, according to the report that was filed to the city, uh, I'm going to just read a little bit of this so people know. But um, uh, where is it here? Um, so basically, it, the, the Thai Cats have said that it's going to take two to three years to put together a comprehensive bid. You're going to need a couple of years, maybe three years to put, to be able to put together a gray cup. So that means that the earliest possible date for a gray cup that Hamilton could be going after is 2019, which is somewhat convenient, Rick, because we know that next year it's in Ottawa and everyone believes the year after is going to be in Regina with their new stadium. So that, that fits in nicely. However, the interesting thing is it says that under the 20 year license agreements, section 19.18, the Tiger Cats organization will make commercially commercially reasonable efforts to bid for the right to host two Grey Cups during the first 10 years of the license agreement. And I'm reading this, and I'm hearing this, and I'm thinking, wait a second. 
if the first bid is 2019, which is three years, I would think, maybe four into the license agreement, that means a second Grey Cup would have to come to Hamilton within the next six years. Leaving a, let's, We'll get to the first one in a second. What are the chances that in the next six years, or in, in a six-year period, Hamilton will host the Grey Cup twice? Well, it's doable. <laughs> As we see, uh, you know, in Toronto, they seem to get the Grey Cup, you know, every third year or so. So I can see the CFL and the city of Hamilton coming to some sort of agreement to say, hey, we haven't had the big game in 20 years. We should get it, you know, two out of the next six, or, you know, if that number computes. All right. Uh, uh, you know, it, that, 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 to me, makes a little sense. They have the facility. Um, they have the downtown infrastructure in terms of hotels and places you can hold festivals and, and whatnot. Um, I, I think it's feasible. I think it's doable. The, the fact of the matter is that, you know, how far down the road uh, after the initial Grey Cup does the CFL want to go back to Hamilton? Will it be within three years? Is it, you know, doable to do it in two because when you look across the league, you know, uh, venues are not an issue any longer. It used to be, you know, years gone by where, you know, you look at Iverwind Stadium, you would look at Canadian Stadium, you would look at Mosaic Stadium and look at those facilities, and even McMahon Stadium currently, uh, and Percival Molson Stadium in Montreal to say, you know what, no, we don't really want to hold the Grey Cup there. You know, it's, it's a somewhat dilapidated facility. Uh, we'll, we'll opt to go to Rogers Centre, we'll go to BC Play Stadium, or we'll even go to Commonwealth Stadium. Uh, because they have the capacity and, you know, all that other infrastructure we can capitalize on. But I think, yeah, two in six years is, is more than doable, as we've seen Toronto do it. Now, the question is not uh, not will the CFL, uh, you know, award Hamilton the game. The question is, will the fans, because we just saw it in Toronto, will the fans want to attend two Grey Cups in three or six years in Hamilton um, uh, from an outsider point of view? If you're living in Regina, or Vancouver, or Montreal, do you want to go back to Hamilton uh, within you know a three- to five-year period? Well, exactly, and I wouldn't even necessarily add the last caveat, because when you said it's doable, my initial thought was, sure, it's doable, but there's no way the CFL is going to give Hamilton, I don't think, two games blankly. They're going to say, here's your game, show us how well you do, and then maybe we'll have a discussion about another one three or five years down the road. Because oh, if Hamilton, 1996 was the last time we had the Grey Cup, and we were selling two-for-one Grey Cup tickets at Tim Hortons the day of the game. It was a disaster. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's a great question. And, and you know, um, I chatted with team president Scott Mitchell a few weeks ago uh, when the initial, hey, you know what, it's going to take at least a couple of years away kind of issue came about. Um, and he was saying, you know, when, when we do host this game, and it's going to be an eventuality, it is obviously going to come sooner rather than later. Um, that when they do host it, they have to do a bang-up job. They have to make it the best Grey Cup uh, in terms of host cities and, and, and things to do um, because the game is going to take care of itself. You can't you can't plan or predict or project how right. the game is going to go, but everything around it... Or even what teams are going to be in it. Or even what teams, exactly. So when it does eventually come here, they have to hit it all out of the ballpark and hit a grand slam, or else the league will say, you know what, it was a mistake coming to Hamilton in this particular year. Maybe we should have waited. Maybe they needed to do you know so and so a little bit better. So when it does come here, it's got to be a grand salami. Well, yeah, and you cannot, although you would love to, uh, you can't guarantee that it's going to be Saskatchewan against Hamilton. And that would be probably the ultimate because you have the home team in it and you have the best traveling, most passionate fan base, and you could put a hundred thousand tickets maybe in Tim Horton at uh, Tim Hortons Field and you'd be okay. But it's you can't arrange those things. So how do you think, honestly? In a let's let's put it in a worst case scenario. I, I don't know what the worst case scenario is, but the two least enticing teams in the CFL travel wise. Let's say that those were the two teams that make it into the Grey Cup. How would Hamilton do? Well, no doubt about it. You pick any venue across the land, and you have two teams from the opposite division uh, come in and, and play the Grey Cup. It was a distinct possibility this year. It could have been Edmonton versus Calgary in Toronto. And, you know, they probably would have had a fraction of the crowd that they got because there was a lot of Ottawa fans that made the trip to Toronto. The pizza to, promotion would have actually stayed in place. Yeah, the pizza promotion <laughs> probably helped a little bit too this year too. <laughs> but, you know, if, if you have a Grey Cup in Hamilton in 2019, which, by the way, is the 150th anniversary of the ah. Hamilton Tiger Cats, ah. or at least the Hamilton Tigers slash Tiger Cats franchise. So put two and two together there. 
Um, you know, the, the two worst teams, you know, probably Vancouver and, you know, if you want to pick a team for the East, probably Montreal. You know, the two opposite ends of the CFL spectrum in terms of franchises. Uh, but other things that could go wrong are things that they would have control over, i.e. facilities. Do we have enough hotel spaces? I think at the current, uh, you know, landscape, I think they are well ahead of the game in terms of what we had in 1996. And I think there is enough space. You factor in Burlington, there's plenty of places to go in the GTA as well. You can make it almost a, uh, dare I say it, a golden horseshoe type games, but it certainly involved more than just Hamilton. I think obviously we want to celebrate the game being back in town, but we have some great communities around this city that we can take advantage of. But the, the festivals have to be there. The performers have to be there. The halftime show has to be bang up. The the anthem singer, you know, every single factor that goes into making a Grey Cup an attraction, an event, a place where people want to be, um, they have to get all those check marks right. We didn't do particularly well crowd-wise with the Vanier Cup, as everybody knows. Uh, Toronto did not really do all that well with the Grey Cup. The place was full, but we know that there were a lot of tickets that were either sold at discount prices or given away. The Pan Am soccer that we had here was, there were some big games and there were some that weren't very full. How would a Grey Cup game be different from all those things? How would you reassure people here to say, you know what, the Grey Cup is a completely different animal. It wouldn't be, you can't compare any of those things with what that would be. Well, I think the difference there is, you know, with the Grey Cup, with the Vanier Cup, uh, even with the Pan Am games, you, you don't really have a home team to cheer for unless your home team is in that game. So it really is a tough sell, um, you know, especially with uh, the Vanier Cup. Uh, you know, you and I were at that game, and, and you know, uh, even a couple of weeks leading up to the game, you have four teams to choose from. You don't know, you know, which team is going to play in that game. You can say the same thing for the Canadian Football League, but you know going in, there's going to be nine different teams vying for this title, and as the season winds down, you're going to have your pick of, you know, two to four teams that could uh, eventually get to the big game. So, you know, come that CFL final, uh, you know, you, you're going to have a lot of fans. They're going to travel from, you know, whether it's Calgary or Regina or Montreal. Uh, the closer you are to the host city and the team that's in there, and you know, obviously if their fans are, are known to travel, you know, i.e. the Rough Riders, um, you know, that, that's a huge plus on your side. But it, it's very hard to predict, you know, which team is going to be in there, and you can't really uh, tailor-make your – uh, your Grey Cup presentation or your Grey Cup bid uh, based on which teams could possibly get there because that's that's the absolute wild card. So how important is it then for the Ticats, for the city of Hamilton, that if, let, let's assume 2019 is happening, how important is it that in 2019, that year, the Hamilton Ticats have a great team? Whether or not they ultimately make it to the Grey Cup, just for the interest level, just for the, the buzz and the hype leading up to it, how, how key is that? I think it's super important. You can say that for every team, but you know, if we're talking the Hamilton Tiger Cats, obviously there's going to be a lot of interest if the team is competitive, even at training camp, because each and every year, every team has that hope that, hey, this might be the year that we go all the way. If your team is hosting the Grey Cup and you know, that off-season uh, you know, publicity of, you know, hey, we've signed this player, we've traded for this player, we boosted our lineup, or we have a new you know, coach or assistant or coordinator – uh, that only kind of revs the engine a little bit more. So when your uh, team in a host year is competitive, that just gets you know the fan bases juices kind of flowing. And they may uh, buy their tickets early. They may not yeah, wait. You're you're gonna you're gonna sell a lot of tickets in advance just to your home fan base. So you might have half the stadium left to sell come you know playoff time or, or even Grey Cup week, and it's a much easier sell at that point. Last thing, uh, what about pricing? Is Hamilton capable of handling an expensive ticket these days. And that, I mean, that may sound patronizing. It's not meant to, but if, if the top ticket is a $600 Grey Cup ticket, because certainly even the prices from 96 when we last held it, um, th- th- the game has changed. If it was a five or $600 or seven or $800 top ticket, can we deal with that? Or does Hamilton have to go bargain basement on the ticket prices? Yeah, that is that is the absolute wild card. Because we saw in Toronto, it did not fly at the prices that they were bringing in, and they did not have a competitive team. The one proviso is, if the Ticats are competitive, if they are being touted as a Grey Cup contender 
2019, if that's the year, uh, I think it's easier to stomach, A, because they are a contender, B, because it hasn't been here in 20 years. You might just get that person who wants to be at this event. But as we've just talked about, come Grey Cup number two in that six-year time frame, how does that price change? Because there is a, hey, I already went to a Grey Cup three years ago in Hamilton. I don't want to spend this amount again. So they really have to get it right the first time around. They can't be uh, screwing around as Toronto did with overcharging or overvaluing their product. Despite the fact that there was a lot of major events going on in the GTA sporting-wise, they simply got it wrong in Toronto. It would be very interesting. Who, who would you have three years hence as the halftime show for a Hamilton Grey Cup? Who's the Who's the halftime show that you would actually pay just for that rather than for the game? Wow, I would probably go with a combination of Drake and how about Monster Truck? Throw in a little kind of Run DMC Aerosmith action. Yeah, and you yeah no that'll be great. Have the Arkells do the national anthem. Make there it all go. make it a whole Hamilton. You know I'm not I'm not a big Drake guy, but I get it. I get it. That might draw some people. But honestly, as I let you go, it is that is something that I think is hor is not horribly is is hugely understated in this. If you're going to charge a fortune for a ticket, you have to at least come up with a halftime show that people will be able to say it's the game and I got to see so and so. It can't be the game and who? It's all about the buzz because there have been many years where the halftime show has been announced and we're all like, "Uh, that doesn't make sense or that's (laughs) not going to fly or nobody's going to be interested in that or that is not buzz worthy enough. uh, Here's another box that the check mark has to be in bright red and it has to be uh, a great golden moment. They got to get it right. We will keep thinking about who uh, who that should be. Um, but you know what? That's not a bad one. That's not a bad one. The Run DMC kind of thing. Walk this way with uh, with a heavy metal and a rap thing. Sure, and then throw in a little opera. Like uh, hit you all the bases. Adele. You can have Adele there. Have Adele. Yeah. Have Boris Brot bring the uh, his orc. You know the symphony. <laughs> Mix and it all together. The Burlington Team Tour Band's gonna be there. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> uh, Rick Zamfrin, thanks so much for doing this tonight. Appreciate it. All right. Cheers, Scott. Uh, yeah, and and one last one. I forgot. Of course, Fern Viola doing the national anthem. Got to have him in there. I mean, he's a legend around here. Never forget about Fern. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.